Thank you for listening to City Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit us at borocitychurch.com. That's B-O-R-O, citychurch.com. Additionally, if this podcast has been an encouragement to you, would you please email us to let us know? You can email us at sermons at borocitychurch.com. Thank you for listening. You may be seated. My name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here. I get the privilege this morning to, to preach to you. Well, we're going to do something this morning that you probably will not, probably never thought that you would do, but we are going to talk a little bit about nursery rhymes. You guys ready? One in particular, one nursery rhyme in particular that I want to talk to you about this morning, and that is Humpty Dumpty. Who here is familiar with Humpty Dumpty? That's nearly probably everyone, right? So here we go. Here's what we're going to do. We are all going to say Humpty Dumpty, the nursery rhyme Humpty Dumpty together, okay? So here we go. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Now, I think when we were kids, that, uh, or particularly when I was a kid, I won't speak for you, but I think when we were kids, we were supposed to learn, learn something from that. And I think I might actually miss that as a kid. This week, as I was doing some reading, um, I was reintroduced to the rhyme, and I learned some, some new things about old Humpty. So in the children's book, Through the Looking Glass, Lewis Carroll expands on this nursery rhyme and shows just how foolish and avoidant Humpty really is. So Alice comes along and enters into a conversation with Humpty and finds him quite comfortable as he's sitting high up on this wall. But Humpty is, is, is smug and he's not at all concerned about his surroundings. Furthermore, he knows that if he does fall, what will happen? What will happen if Humpty falls? No, he doesn't know. Well, he thinks he knows that, but what is his ultimate hope? Somebody's going to put him back together again. All the king's horse and all the king's men are going to put him back together again. So he's sitting up there quite comfortable. So yes, all the king's horse and all the king's men are going to put him back together, so he thinks. But you see, not only does he not see the reality of the danger, not only does he feel invulnerable His reality is unfixed to anything. He establishes his own reality in his mind. At one point, Alice challenges Humpty on the word, uh, the word of the the meaning of the word glory, and Humpty asserts that she has no idea what the word actually means. So Alice says, "Well, why don't you tell me what it means, dear Humpty?" So he says, "When I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more, neither less." What? Didn't even answer the question. He refuses to be anchored to any meaning outside of the meaning that he establishes for himself. Humpty not only underestimates his own invulnerability, but he's also not fixed to any reality. He's a fragile egg man sitting on top of a narrow wall thinking that nothing outside himself can affect him. But what happens? What happens to dear old Humpty? He falls, right? And Alice describes it as a heavy crash that shook the forest from end to end. This morning, I want to show you that you and I are not much different than Humpty. Just like Humpty, we tend 
to think, we tend to believe we live in a fairy tale of sorts in which our assumptions are never tested either because we have no fixed reality or, and or we're unwilling to hear from a dissenting voice who's trying to tell us truth. It's in this type of environment that we tend to create our own meaning. We create meaning by creating and establishing goals. We create goals dis- disconnected from the reality that we're actually pretty vulnerable people. We refuse to believe that we have thin shells. Then we begin to believe that we actually are invulnerable. And if we can do enough, if we can do enough, if we can control our environment enough, then nothing bad will ever, 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 ever happen to us. See, the problem is that's all an illusion. We're vulnerable and we know it. I think the thing is, is that we're just afraid to admit it. Because if we admit that we're vulnerable, we're afraid that we're going to come unglued. I want to show you this morning that we don't have to live in fear of the crash, the heavy crash that shakes the forest from end to end. You can be prepared and you can be rock solid. And that's what I'm hoping that God's going to show us this morning as we read 1 Peter. So we're in 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible this morning, you guys go ahead and turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles that we give away. Markeisha's back there. She is showcasing them. There she is. She's showcasing the Bibles now. So if you don't have one, you can go back there and pick that up. We'd love for that to be a gift to you. We'd love for you to take it home and to read it. So here we are, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. To those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctification, sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You rejoice in this. Even though for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, your faith may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him. And you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. 
This is the word of the Lord. As we begin this new series in the book, in the letter of 1 Peter, I think it's important for you to know a couple things about this letter. This letter was written by none other than Peter himself. And this is the same Peter that, who was one of Jesus' disciples. In verse 1, Peter indicates that he's writing to Gentile believers, that Gentile meaning non-Jews, who were living in Asia Minor, which is kind of now like, a, not like, it actually is modern day Turkey. And at the time he writes to them, these Christians are experiencing a great amount of suffering. And Peter writes to them to encourage them while they're in the middle of this suffering. Furthermore, he gives them instructions on how to live in front of the people who are actually persecuting them. So the people who are persecuting them can see exactly who Jesus is. And so that, 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 that they know that God loves them and, and that Jesus is willing to also save them. He's writing to ground them in reality. But what's interesting about how Peter goes about doing that is that Peter doesn't give them a, oh, bless your heart. You know what? You just stand your ground. You just tell them mean old people in Asia Minor that, to leave you alone. You belong here. No, that, that's not what Peter does. He tells them, you're actually very vulnerable. You don't belong where you are. The word you see him use in verse 1 is, is exile. And that same word is translated later in the, le- in the letter as stranger. In some of your translations, it might actually say alien. He says to them, listen, you're strangers. You're exiles. You're aliens. You don't belong. But even in the middle of not belonging, even in the middle of suffering, something is very different about these, Peter, about these people to whom Peter is writing. Here's what's different. It's the way they're embracing their suffering. Look at the way these Christians handle their suffering. Look at verse 6. They're rejoicing though they suffer. You see that? These two verbs, the ones for rejoice and the ones for suffer, they're, they're very, in, in, in the Greek, they're words that are both intense form of the words. They're they're intensely rejoicing. Paul later describes in verse 8 that their joy and happiness is so great that they can barely express it. He calls it inexpressible. With with quivering lips and tears rolling down their cheeks, they rejoice. The other word or phrase that we see here is you suffer grief. Like I said, this is also an intense form of the verb, and this verb is lupeo. It's the same word used to describe Jesus as he goes to the cross, crushed. Furthermore, both of these verbs are in present tense. So what does that mean? Well, in spite of the way they are being crushed, in spite of the way that they're experiencing this great amount of suffering, they're rejoicing. They're joyful and happy at the same time as they feel crushed. Both of these actions are happening simultaneously. Now, I think when we hear that, we're like, no, that's, that, that's not possible. That's not possible for someone to rejoice and suffer at the same time. And if I'm being honest with you, sometimes I don't believe it's possible either. You see, this, 
This joy and this suffering that, that, that they're, that, that's taking place, they're happening at the same time. And we tend to think that, yes, we can be joyful and happy before the circumstances come along. We can be joyful and happy before we experience suffering. Or we can be joyful and happy after the suffering, after it passes, after this suffering takes place, we can then be happy once we get around it. But these people that, Paul's, that Peter is writing to, they're not waiting for the tough times to go away. And you know, you know what? I, I think most of us want to be people like this. Like, we want to be able to rejoice. We want to be able to have a, a deep happiness that our circumstances can't touch. We, we want to be able to, we, we want joy right in the middle of suffering. Right, because we think that's beautiful. When we see that happening, whether it's in a, on a TV show or in a movie or in our community group or in our church, we'd love when we see that. We think it's beautiful, but ultimately, not but ultimately, I think ultimately you and I want this to be said about us in our obituary. We want a life like this. We want a life of deep substance. But listen, there's no way to get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. There's no way to get through life unless you know how to get through suffering. What are the typical ways that we go about getting through suffering? Well, first of all, I'm not sure we typically try to get through it. We mostly try to avoid suffering, right? We, you know, one, one of the, the experiences of suffering that a lot of you experience is uh, that wonderful commute to Nashville. If there were a different road you could take, I know every one of you would take it. But, you know, this is opportunity. If you embrace the suffering in your life that God has placed, right? Stay on the interstate. Now, we either avoid it or we fight against it. And what is suffering in the first place? You know, I bet if we took a poll of everyone in this room, we'd all have different definitions of what suffering is. And as a pastor, I've come to understand that suffering is pretty subjective. I mean, a middle schooler learning how to sit still for an hour and study note cards, I mean, that feels like they're in intense suffering, right? More seriously, a freshman college student who just broke up with her girlfriend feels like she's in intense suffering. A parent trying to understand and know how to parent their rebellious and rambunctious four-year-old feels like they're in intense suffering. A wife and teenage child who just lost their husband and dad to a car accident, they feel like they're in intense suffering. That's what I mean by subjective. In various stages of life, we experience suffering in different ways, but they're no less difficult when they come our way. So the question is, how do we get through them? How do we remain joyful and happiness, happy in the presence in the, in the present moment of that intense suffering. So I believe that we want to be big people who are full of joy and happiness in spite of the things that feel like they're crushing us or eating away at the person that we once used to be. How do we become big people? Well, let's, let's first think back to old Humpty. Humpty became larger, bigger and larger than life. But you see, he was, he was totally pretending something that he was not. He was, he, he, he was pretending to the, to the extent that he actually believed the lie. He lost view of his vulnerability. While pretending and protecting himself from himself, he succumbed to the very thing that he thought could never happen. He got scrambled. But here's what we tend to do. 
We think if we have the best whatever, then our lives will not be sad, incomplete, or rough or tough. Just insert whatever you think you need. If I parent my kids this way, my kids will turn out this way, and I won't have any suffering, I won't have to deal with any rebellion, just a smooth life. If I have this amount of money, I can have this sort of house and car, and I can have the easy life I've always dreamed about. If I can eat this way, eat this sort of food, then I won't have to worry about disease, then I can have an easy life with no difficulty. If I have this kind of bathroom or kitchen with these kind of finishes, then my life will be smooth and easy and I can come home and actually have something to actually enjoy. I can be happy. If I have a class in which I don't have to do any work or papers or tests, then I can live the life and have the social life that I want to live, or at least I see other people pretending to live on Instagram. Then I won't have any difficulty. The sad thing is, is that in our attempt... In our attempt to become big, happy people, we protect ourselves from any possible suffering. We protect ourselves from any bad thing that we can imagine that would take place. So if we can prevent it, then it won't affect us. But you see, the odd thing is, is the people who self-protect the most, who are in control the most, who are the most comfortable and walled off, are the people who are most affected when tragedy comes their way because it takes them by surprise. And then when the suffering comes, you're undone. You feel depressed. You feel anxious. You feel like you have anxiety. These are all effects, real effects of suffering. And you begin to feel small. You feel like you can't catch your breath. And then for those of you who don't turn to God, or you don't turn to the community of the church he's placed here, what do you do? You just try to cover it up. You just try to cover over the suffering. Let's just block it out. I don't want to I don't want to even I want to pretend it doesn't even exist. Or you get angry at it. As time passes and you learn how to cope, you either hate everything and everyone that resembles the thing or person you caused your suffering. So you end up hating the opposite sex or a particular authority figure because if one person does it to you, they all will. Or you'll turn to apathy. You just don't care for much. Or you try to bury yourself to escape it. Or after a, a hard day of work, you, you know, you deserve to decompress after a hard day work. You don't want to think about how hard work was. So you turn to alcohol, a, a large glass of wine to help soothe your discomfort away. Or when you feel nervous or anxious, and God forbid it be like on, on your wedding day or something, you turn to liquid courage to help you get through it. You refuse to feel the emotions that you have. Think of your life like a big V. In this V is the fullness of all of life's experiences. On my right is difficulty, and on my left is happiness. In the middle is the stuff that's just kind of the norm. It's things like mowing the yard and brushing your teeth and giving the kids their breakfast and going and buying groceries. Over on my right, we think in order to live a normal life, We need to cut off and protect ourselves from the difficulty and suffering that we feel. So we do that however we can. We just completely cut it off. Avoid it at all costs. Don't feel it. Don't grieve. Just stuff it. So we cut it off and we pretend that the hard stuff doesn't exist. You see, and what we end up doing is we become less of a person. And the only way that we think we can make our lives happier is by increasing the number of happy things in our lives. More vacations, bigger and better vacations, bigger bank accounts, a better looking, kinder wife, more freedom. 
But when you go bigger and better, you keep trying to make yourself feel better in that process. You actually just dull your senses to what is actually pleasing, thereby actually reducing your happiness. Everything else just becomes normal. You prevent yourself from being a big person all because you cut yourself off from the suffering and difficulty. You cut yourself off from the wisdom that comes from that difficulty and suffering. You, you cut yourself off from becoming, from a person who has a deep heart and a compassion for others. You become less of a person by disconnecting from that difficulty and the reality of that. But you see, a Christian is someone who can simultaneously experience deep happiness and deep sorrow. A Christian is able to experience death, darkness, and difficulty at its core, but also at the same time, experience joy. So how is that? How do we do that? How as a Christian do we do that? Well, there's no way to get through suffering until you experience new birth. There's no way to get through it until you experience new birth. In verse 3, some of your Bibles might say, born again. Born again? New birth? Is that one of these churches? I'm just calling it what the Bible says. But what happens in new birth? Well, First of all, this new birth that Peter is talking to us about is something that comes through and by God's mercy. It's given to us by God's mercy. It's nothing that you can live up to on your own. How do you receive new birth? Well, you have to admit that it's something that you can't do yourself. I'm confident as we speak physically about birth that not one of you in this room birthed yourself, all right? Not one of you birthed yourself. You might think you did, but you didn't, all right? Your mother gave birth to you. And after you came out of the womb, what did you do? You did baby things. You ate, you cried, and you pooped. You learned how to grow up. Time and parenting grew you up to the people that you you are right now. You see, in Christ, you've been given a new birth. It's not a turning over of the leaf. It's not doing church to make yourself feel better. It's not doing a couple of righteous things to cancel out the bad things that you just did last night or even over the last two years for that matter. You'll never do enough to cover over your sin. New birth is a completely new beginning. But what I get concerned about as a pastor is that we try to make new birth happen because we just want to, feel, we just want to help ourselves feel better. If I can try this or that religious technique, I'll be good to go in about two months. If I can read my Bible for a week straight, then I'll be good. I'll be set. I should have a good marriage after that. I should be able to reduce this anxiety. I should feel like Humpty sitting up on that wall, impenetrable. Nope. Does a baby become a man in a few months? Like I told first service, unless you're Anthony Fontaine, that does not happen. Anthony is one of our elders. He is, a, he is a man. He's a man's man. Now listen, stop trying to be someone you're not. So just what am I saying? Well, I'm saying that maybe in this room, there are several people who have pretended to be a Christian and very well thought you were a Christian, but you actually aren't a Christian. I'm just saying stop pretending. Receive new birth. Or maybe you're, you're a new Christian or an old one for that matter, who's frustrated that you're not knocking it out of the park, whatever that means. The same old sin keeps entangling you. 
Well, perhaps the first thing you should do is talk to someone in this church, in your community group, who can, who can, challenge, you, who can challenge you to help you remember that you are a baby Christian but keep challenging you to move forward. Listen, it's okay to be where you are. It's not okay to stay there. But this new birth, this new birth just doesn't get you an entrance into God's family. No, it's your strength to face today and tomorrow's sorrow. You see, it gives you a future hope. It gives you a living hope. I hope that's always on the horizon And this is why so many of us are crushed when suffering comes our way. We only have a hope that is temporal, that's short-lived, that's short-term. First of all, let me say that I don't hate goals, all right? I think goals are good things. Setting a goal to be on a budget, that's a good thing. Having a savings goal, that's a good thing. Wanting to be fit and healthy, I think that's a good thing. Wanting to live in a home rather than rent, that's a good thing. Wanting to spend time with your family, those are good things. Wanting to graduate, that's a good thing. Wanting to learn more, have more knowledge, those are good things. But all of these goals and the things like them, they're all temporal, they're all temporary. They can't hold the weight of your eternal longing. You see, for many of us, our hope is simply that our circumstances will change. And so much of our energy and our time and our money is spent on changing our circumstances rather than depending on and trusting the God who controls them. Your problem is is that you don't have, it's not that you have too many goals. Your problem is that you have too low of a goal. You have no living hope. You've forgotten the hope that, that lifts your head when things go bad. There's no hope outside of this hope, outside the one that Peter talks about that can span your life, that is big enough to stay in focus, to keep your eyes on it throughout all of life. All other hopes, all other hopes, they're all just things that will temporarily change your life. That that white quartz countertop in 30 years will be as similar to the funky green paint that your grandma has in her kitchen. Look, God through Christ is offering you a living hope, one that is big enough to give you happiness, not only over the next three to 70 years, but one that will last throughout all of eternity. Look at how beautiful this is. Look at verses three and four. Because Jesus, because Jesus resurrected from the dead, he overcame the enemy, his forces, and death itself. And because of that, he gives us a living hope. When you receive new birth in Christ, you get a living hope, a hope that will last, a hope that will not die, a hope unlike your goals that's not dependent upon life circumstances, a hope that will not be shattered when you get that phone call or that text or that email, a hope that will last. You get an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. What, what, sort of a, what sort of inheritance is it that awaits us for those who trust in Christ? It's one that's not going anywhere. It's one that can't be taken by sin and death. It's one that will never be, never be touched by a stock crash. It's one that can't be undone by the unfaithful actions of another. It's one that can't be touched by a car crash or a cancer diagnosis. It's one whose value is limitless and whose beauty will never fade. What is it? It's new heavens 
and new earth, praise God. And not just new heavens and new earth alone. No, it's what we get. We get new heavens and new earth and God himself. Peter expounds on this promise in his second letter. 2 Peter 3.13 says, But based on his promise, based on the promise of Christ, we wait for new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Through Christ, God has secured for us a living hope, an inheritance where we will be with him and where there will be no sin and none of its consequences, where righteousness himself will be, where we will be with God and we will be his people forever. This hope, this hope plays an integral relationship with this rejoicing of the people that Peter's writing to. Look at verse six, he says, you rejoice in this. You rejoice in this. What is the this? What's the thing that fuels their joy that's so intense that it's almost inexpressible? It's so weighty that sometimes all that can be expressed are tears. Well, it's the promise of verses three through five. It's the promise of the future that they have. It's a promise. It's the eternal promise of being with God in the new heavens and new earth. Do you see how all this is all this is working together? For the Christian, you know that it's because of God's mercy that you've been put into his family. It's through his act of mercy, of sending Jesus to rescue you, that makes you be born again into his family. That new birth brings you an eternal inheritance, one that lifts your chin to the horizon of eternity, so that when suffering comes, you can take it in stride. You don't ignore it. You don't pretend it doesn't exist. You don't hate the people who cause it. No, you grieve, you feel the pain, but you don't let it tell you who you are. Now you tell it who it is. You remind the suffering that comes your way of its purpose. What purpose is that? Look at verse 7. Your faith, your trust in God is shaped by and through your suffering. There is no other way. There is no other way to become that big person, that big, deep person. You go through suffering. Suffering proves and shapes your character. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says it this way. Not only that. What is the that? Paul, or Paul is writing there to tell them, look, you have Jesus. Jesus, God has, has adopted you into his family. And now because of that, not only has he adopted you and considered you part of his family, he says, but we also rejoice in our suffering, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Because God's love has been poured into our heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Why do we rejoice in our suffering, City Church? Because it's deepening us. It's deepening us in character and it's purifying our hopes. Like the process that gold goes through. Suffering is a crucible that burns off the dross of dead hopes. It removes the invaluable things. The things that reduce its value and its preciousness. And what comes out is pure. It's pure and undefiled. And just like Peter describes the living hope that awaits us in that future The living hope is undefiled. You see, the suffering that comes our way is matching us up with the undefiled future to which you belong. If you don't go through the suffering, if you just try to 
numb it or avoid it or if you pretend that you're invulnerable, all you're actually doing is prohibiting God's work and progress in your life. So what gives? I feel like probably some of you feel like there's a chasm. There's a chasm between becoming that person, how you feel, and then experiencing that largeness of life that Peter's writing about. So where do you start? Well, the only way, the only way to prepare yourself for or get through suffering is by worshiping. It's only by worshiping. Listen, I'm not necessarily talking about listening to music, worship music. I'm talking about moving your heart and your soul in a direction to see the beauty of the God who is and what Jesus has done to bring you into his family. I'm talking about moving your eyes off the things that you think will bring you hope and lifting them up to the horizon of eternity. Listen, I'm talking about more than a spiritual high that you're going to get this morning, and you're probably going to forget if you have kids. You get out in the car, they're going to, you start yelling and screaming. You don't even wonder if you're even a Christian at that point. Listen, we need this worship gathering. We need to sing, and we need to remind one another of this. The worship gathering is foundational. And some of you simply need to commit to be here. If you're a covenant member, you've already made that commitment. So I just say, just hold to it. We need one another to be able to remind us of this truth. But going further, what kind of worship am I talking about? It's meditating on Christ. Look at what they do in verse 8. What are they doing? What are the people to whom Peter, Peter is writing? What are they doing? They love Jesus. They love him. They believe in what he has promised. That's the pattern for us. How will we get through suffering and difficulty when it comes? And how do we not only get through it, but how do we rejoice through it? Only by meditating on the fact that you and I were desperately drowning in our sin. But God the Father in his mercy sent us Jesus to rescue us. So what does it mean to meditate? Well, you have to spend time thinking about it. Every day. One time a week on a Sunday ain't going to do it. You have to provide time and space for God's spirit to enter in. And you know what? That will only come when you're willing to stop. When you're willing to feel. When you're willing to be honest and to cry out and to ask God to help the vulnerable person that you are. There will be no joy where there is no worship. Listen, the gospel, the good news of what God has done through Jesus is so beautiful that Peter in verse 12 says that angels long to look into it. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Because they're not human beings. They were created, they're created beings, but they, because they are those created beings, they don't understand the immense grace and mercy that God has shown to us human beings. And they long to fully understand the beauty of it. Even in the presence of God himself, they can't understand the beauty and the depth of the gospel. You and I have something that blows the minds of angels in heaven. And all we need to do is to look into it ourselves. Get lost in it. 
If you want joy in the midst, in the midst of the difficulty, you'll need to spend time developing love for God, love for the God who died for you. You need to spend time developing a love for the God who died for you and a love for the promise that he's promising you in the future. Listen, don't be a Humpty. Don't pretend you're something you're not. If you're not a Christian, receive new birth. And if you are a Christian, you can lean into the scary things because God's spirit is in you. And you know that the hard things actually are making you into an undefiled, holy person God is growing you to be. You're an alien. You're an alien living in a place you don't belong. But you've been offered new birth through Christ. You're being built anew from the inside out. The only way to believe all of that is to be mesmerized by it. So City Church, let's be mesmerized by it together. Let's pray.